Chapter Seven of *The Man with the Black Cord* by Augusta Groner, translated by Grace Isabel Colbron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mr. Robert Hartman comes to Inzersdorf. The great brick factory, the chief reason for existence of the little village of Inzersdorf, lay about half an hour distant by foot from the official center of the town. Near the factory was the large and attractive dwelling house in which Richard Plon, general manager of the works, lived with his family. Tall, heavy foliaged trees and wide stretches of lawn separated the comfortable home from its utilitarian but unattractive surroundings. The main high road leading to the south lay along one side of the garden. On this road, in front of the main entrance to the manager's garden, a well-appointed carriage halted one rainy evening. A young man who sat beside the coachman on the box sprang out and rang the bell at the gate. The servant who opened bowed deeply before the gentleman in the wagon. "'Too bad you should come in such weather, sir,' he said. "'Shall I take your trunk?' "'Please do. And, Carl, you take the handbags. No, leave me the umbrella myself.' Following the two servants up the path through the heavy rain, the stranger entered the main door of the house, greeted most cordially by Manager Plone. "'I am Manager Plone," said the latter. "'Welcome to my home.' "'My name is Hartman. Robert Hartman.' answered the elderly gentleman who had just arrived i hope sincerely that my coming will not cause any inconvenience in your household and that you will not be angry with the baron because he sends me to you no indeed said plon you do us a great favor by coming for i assure you it is dreary enough in isersdorf sometimes but you must know that i have the reputation of being an original oh i'm not afraid of that laughed the manager we have two or three other originals in our family already but now tell me, would you rather be domiciled downstairs or up one flight? There are two rooms at your service in either story, and we can easily take care of your valet also. May I be quite frank? Please do. The baron told me something about a pavilion in your garden. Yes, there is such a one, but it's quite a distance from the house, and if you want to have your man with you there, it would give you only one room for yourself. I don't mind that, and I'm used to living alone. Then I will have them put the pavilion in order for you. "'You go and help them, Carl,' said Mr. Hartman to his servant. "'It will be damp and cold in the pavilion,' continued Plon. "'They will have to air the rooms and heat them thoroughly. "'Won't you join us in the sitting-room until the place is ready? "'And you're sure that you will not be afraid to sleep there? "'The pavilion is in a distant corner of the garden, "'right by the wall beyond which is the open moor, "'and our neighborhood, I am sorry to say, is not a safe one. "'I am not afraid. I am strong and well, and am not unarmed. "'Besides, I am not alone if I have my man with me.' Mr. Plone gave orders to have the pavilion put in readiness, and then asked his guest to follow him into the sitting-room. An hour later the stranger was the centre of attraction in the family circle. Plone's little boy rode fearlessly on his knee, while Mimi, a year older, tugged at his coat with perfect confidence and begged for another lovely story. The great St. Bernard dog sat beside Hartman, looking at him with cordial interest, and the three grown members of the family, manager Plone and his wife, as well as his sister, Miss Suzanne, had already decided that the advent of this stranger into their midst was as pleasant a thing as could have happened to them, for they found Hartman a highly cultivated, delightful conversationalist, who bade fair to be an entertaining addition to the small social circle of the neighborhood. The stranger, Robert Hartman, as he called himself, a landed proprietor from Poland, had discovered brick clay on his estate, and determined to start a brick factory, but as he knew nothing whatever about this industry, he concluded that it would be well to study it up first. His friend, Baron von Stein, in Vienna, 
had suggested to Hartmann that he might live in Inzersdorf for two or three weeks and study the brick-making there. The baron wrote to the manager about this, and the latter had at once invited his employer's friend to be his guest for an indefinite length of time. The baron had hinted that any courtesy offered to Hartmann would be considered as a favor to himself, and Plon was only too glad to oblige his chief. The servants had been told to make everything as comfortable as possible for him, and the family were now greatly pleased to find their unknown guest so delightful a person. About an hour after Hartmann's arrival the pavilion was ready for him, and his host accompanied him through the garden. The little house itself was a comfortable structure, built of bricks, raised up on a foundation of the height of half a story, and containing one large room and one smaller one. The windows were protected by iron bars, and the door was a heavy one ornamented with iron. The rooms were comfortably, even handsomely furnished, for the plones used it for extra guests who came unexpectedly when the main house was full. "'Why, how pretty this is!' exclaimed Hartman as he opened the door of the main room. The heavy curtains shut out the storm, and the bright fire, as well as the shaded electrics, gave an inviting glow of warmth and light. Hartman looked about him with great pleasure, and set about making himself comfortable, after having promised his host to return to the house punctually at seven o'clock for the evening meal. When left alone with his servant, the guest opened each of the windows in turn, examining the lay of the land outside. Then he helped the valet dispose of the contents of his trunks and bags, and finally lay down on the sofa and lit himself a pipe. At the stroke of seven he was again in the main house, and found four other guests there beside himself. Two of the three other men were introduced to him as officials of the factory, Gebhardt the cashier, and Bauer the head bookkeeper. The third guest was named by Plon as Dr. Maximoff, my future brother-in-law. With Maximoff, who was a tall, fine-looking Russian, was a charming little girl of five years old, his daughter. As they sat at table, Hartman, apparently engaged in doing all justice to the abundant repast, was the while looking carefully around him and taking stock of the others of the party. Instinctively from the first, he took a dislike to Bauer, the bookkeeper. He chided himself inwardly for this, saying that the poor man could not help his unattractive appearance, his coarse, irregular features, immense mouth, and ugly yellow teeth. Nor was he probably altogether to blame for his very clumsy and awkward manners. But there was something in the man's expression, a shifty look to the pale eyes, which glanced about him nervously from time to time, that particularly antagonized the stranger. Gebhardt, the cashier, was merely a commonplace type, whereas Dr. Maximov, was in every way a noticeable personality, a complete contrast to the unfortunate bookkeeper. The Russian, apparently about forty years of age, was a superbly built man whose strength was combined with a quiet dignity and an easy grace of movement that was most attractive. He was an excellent talker, bright and cheerful, his handsome face lighting up with frank, smiling animation at every subject that interested him. Yet in repose there was a deep melancholy in his great eyes that gave an added charm to the man's personality. Hartman quite understood the affection with which Miss Suzanne Plone, otherwise a calm and self-possessed young lady, glanced up now and then at her betrothed. The meal progressed comfortably, and when it was over the company adjourned to the cozy living room. The gentleman had just started out on an animated political discussion when the maidservant entered the room with an appearance of haste and excitement. "'What's the matter?' asked Plone, who saw the girl first. "'There's something happened, sir. There's been a fight, and one of the workmen is badly hurt. The constable's there already. 
replied the maid. Plone left the room hastily, followed by his two employees. Maximoff went with them. Hartman sat quietly with the ladies, although they both looked at him somewhat in surprise. But they were quite satisfied that he made no move to follow the others, as they did not enjoy being left alone. The sudden disturbance naturally made a break in the conversation. The guest broke an uneasy little pause by asking if these fights were customary among the workmen in the factory. "'Yes, unfortunately they are,' sighed Mrs. Plone. "'Particularly on Saturdays,' put in Suzanne, "'when they get their money and gather in the saloon. They're sure to be trouble. But I suppose it's so everywhere in these big establishments.' "'Yes, that's true,' added Mrs. Plone. "'Only our particular misfortune is that among our men there must be a monster of quite particular and unusual wickedness.' Hartman looked up with great interest. "'Must be, you say?' he asked. "'Why so definite?' "'Why, I don't know,' said the lady. "'I suppose I might have spoken quite definitely, for we know that he is here. Only no one has ever seen him, at least not to know it. His existence, however, is too unfortunately an evident fact.' "'Anna,' said her sister-in-law, "'I think I'd better take the children up to the nursery.' Mrs. Plone nodded, and Suzanne led the three little ones away. Hartman waited for their departure with impatience. "'Do tell me, dear madam, what do you mean by this? It is most interesting. What has happened here? And why are any of your workmen suspected of whatever deed it is you are thinking of?' "'It began about three years ago in the autumn,' said Mrs. Plone. "'They found the body of an old peddler in one of our shallow ponds. He had not been drowned, but had been strangled before being thrown into the water. The cord which had pressed his life out was still around his throat. It was a bit of black cord of an unusual sort.' "'And the criminal or criminals were not discovered?' "'No, the murderer, we are quite certain there was only one, has not been discovered even yet.' "'Was there any motive that one could find out? An act of personal revenge? Or was it robbery? Even the peddler's little pack can sometimes excite cupidity.' "'Oh, no, the man was a poor old soul, who hadn't an enemy in the world, and his pack was found untouched beside the pond.' "'Hm. And then what else?' "'Oh, there were other cases.' "'Other murders?' no minor crimes for instance an empty house was broken into a private house belonging to people who came here for the summer was there much taken from the house there was nothing taken at all then the criminal or criminals were frightened away no no one saw the man you're quite sure there was only one yes there was only one that was proved by the tracks in the snow our constable happened to pass the house the next morning and saw footprints in the deep snow leading from the street up to the empty house Hm. And then? The official followed these tracks up to the house, stepping carefully beside them. The tracks, he said, were of unusual size. The house has only a small garden and is surrounded by a high iron railing. The constable noticed that the house door and all the windows were opened. There was no smoke from the chimneys, but the constable thought it possible that someone might have come merely to air the house and to look about inside, so he rang the bell. There was no answer even to his repeated ringing. He saw that the footprints led up to the front door, and that other tracks led out again from the door and around to the back of the house. The policeman followed these tracks back to the end of the garden, and saw that there were several boards broken out of the fence. From there the tracks led into the grove beyond. Our worthy constable went around to the front of the house again, and hailing a passerby, sent him to the police station with news of the occurrence. He himself waited in front of the house until the police commission came, and then they all entered together. The house was empty, and there was no sign of damage done within. In one particular only was there any trace of an outsider's presence there. The lock of the sideboard was broken open, and a bottle of expensive wine taken out. 
this two-thirds empty with a used glass were on top of the sideboard a cigar box was open and one of the cigars missing a little heap of ashes on the sideboard showed that the intruder had been smoking there but where do you think that half a cigar was found i haven't an idea no nobody could imagine it that hadn't heard of it the rest of the cigar was found in the mouth of a snowman which was built up in the yard at the back of the house a remarkably well-modeled figure what a delightful idea yes the owner of the house thought so too as he is a man with a sense of humor only he did not care to run the danger of more such unexpected visitations so he sold his house to people who would live in it year-round the whole performance was astonishingly impudent to say the least but that isn't all mrs plone i can see by your face that you're keeping back the most interesting morsel for the last your guess is correct mr hartman and may i not know what it is i'm waiting for you to ask how it was we knew that this impudent trick was played by the murderer of the poor old peddler please imagine the question asked i'm very curious as to the answer the originator of this trick had left something else on the snowman besides the cigar and what was that a black cord oh that is interesting mr hartman straightened up in his chair and looked out into space his gray eyes brilliantly keen i thought you would be surprised it certainly is a piece of astonishing cynicism this leaving the black cord around the neck of the innocent snowman in the very same manner that it was found about the neck of the unfortunate peddler said mrs plone hartman passed his hand over his forehead in this case it took the place of a visiting card his voice had a peculiarly hard tone as he spoke yes of course there was no other reason for it this time but it's strange this unknown monster should have been so ready to let us know that he was still in the neighborhood after such a murder yes that was quite unnecessary wasn't it put in miss suzanne who had just returned did you tell mr hartman about the attack on the cattle dealer no i left that for you that happened since you've been here oh then miss plone hasn't lived here always asked the guest with polite interest no i've only been here since my mother's death which happened about a year ago and this other incident occurred just after my arrival then you tell mr hartman about it laughed mrs plone that is if you're sure you will not feel creepy when you get back to your lonely abode she added turning to her guest for it happened just outside our wall about opposite the pavilion that makes it all the more interesting said hartman with a smile which cloaked the tense lines of his face now i really must hear the story you may have noticed that a lane goes out past our wall at the end of the garden it goes through a sort of cut right there for the ground is higher on the other side and the bushes are thick it was just such a rainy evening as this one when a cattle dealer of insersdorf walked past here alone on his way to the more distant of our two railway stations it was a rather thoughtless thing for the man to do for he was known to have made a big deal at the market that day and might suppose therefore to have considerable money with him as he approached the cut in the lane the cattle dealer had the feeling that someone was following him on the other side of the bushes he stopped and listened it was already too dark to see anything he thought he saw a figure behind the bushes but when he went over to look it was gone the man took his revolver in his hand and went on his way suddenly his hat was torn from his head and something struck his face like a whiplash drawing a long cut in his cheek the dealer shouted and fired his revolver in the air with the other hand he caught at the thing whatever it was that was on his face he only just caught it lightly something that seemed to him like a thin cord with sharp edges then it was torn from his hand and he saw a figure disappear into the woods he shot again in that direction but had no means of knowing whether the bullet took effect everything was quiet after that 
but the cattle dealer returned to Inzersdorf police station and told what had happened to him. Next morning, the ground around the spot was examined. Was anything found? Nothing but a number of footprints in the rain-soaked ground. Footprints of unusual size. All footprints seem large in rain-soaked earth, remarked Hartman. Suzanne smiled. That may be, she said, but the footprints of this lasso-thrower measured sixteen inches at least, and the space between them was nearly six feet. The man must have fairly jumped from step to step. Yes, that's so. That was a wide stride. Particularly when you consider the condition of the ground. Which shows that the man had very long legs, great physical strength and activity, said the guest, and Suzanne added, and it shows also, doesn't it, that he must be a man in the prime of life. Quite right, Miss Plone, replied Hartman. Your conclusion would do honor to an experienced police official. Oh, here they come, said Suzanne, rising quickly and going to meet her brother. Where is Sergius? she asked. Is he still with the injured or dead man? It was only an injury, said the manager. Maximoff has treated his wounds and will stay with him until the ambulance comes. He will join us again when he has cleaned himself up, he says. Who is the victim? He's one of the newer men. I don't think you know him. His wounds are not fatal, but they are pretty bad. Do they know who did it? There seemed to be three of them. It was a drunken brawl, of course. Bauer, will you kindly telephone to the police station? This thing has got to stop. If I have to have the innkeeper's concession taken away. Bauer left the room, and the ladies continued to question Plone. Who are the three attackers? Have they been arrested yet? asked Mrs. Plone. Yes, the constable has taken them off. The chief sinner is Lieb who is at the bottom of everything of that kind here, and then the two Polish brothers with the unpronounceable name. But this is really distressing, said Hartman. Will I have all this trouble when I start my brick factory? Plone laughed. I couldn't say in advance, he replied. There is sure to be trouble of this kind everywhere where you have a lot of workmen together, a number of them unmarried men living in barracks. But the brutality in this neighborhood seems to be worse than anywhere else, even including murders and night attacks. "'Oh, then the ladies have been telling you—' "'Yes,' said Mrs. Plone. "'The occurrence of this evening naturally suggested the subject.' "'Well, then, as long as we have started that topic, suppose our friend Gebhardt here tells us about his adventure. We must all do what we can to entertain our honoured guest.' Plone spoke with a laugh in his eyes. "'Oh, don't you make fun of us,' said Suzanne quickly. "'You're just as much excited over all these things as we are. You won't even let us walk to Inzersdorf without protection.' Didn't we have to borrow Sergius's carriage the other day because our own was being fixed and we had to be out after dark? No, indeed. This unknown monster, as Anna calls him, worries you just as much as he does us. Who is it that worries you? said Maximoff, entering the room just then. We were talking about the unknown criminal who must be living here among our workmen, said Mrs. Plone. But why are you so sure that the man must be one of your workmen? asked Hartman, and Maximoff, who took a seat beside Suzanne, added, Yes, that's true, Anna. I've often intended to ask you why you are so sure that it is one of your men. The hostess shrugged her shoulders. I really don't know why I should be so sure about it, she confessed, but the whole neighborhood seems to think so, and I fell in with the general opinion. Besides, the police authorities know every one of the permanent inhabitants of our village, and there is nobody among them who could come under suspicion. But these workmen come from nobody knows where, stay with us for a little while, and then pass on. There is no way of controlling them, or even of getting to really know them. "'But don't you know,' said Dr. Maximoff gravely, "'that sometimes the most dangerous criminals can be found in the class of people whom we invite to our dinner-table?' "'Here, here,' cut in Plone. "'Don't let's start a discussion. We want our guests to hear Gebhardt's story.' 
The cashier told him how he had been attacked one evening as he was leaving the village inn, rather late, on his way to his own rooms, which were in the office building. The incident happened last spring, and he still carried traces of it. "'You can see here,' he said, pushing back his left sleeve. "'Here is where some heavy, blunt instrument struck my arm. It split the bone and tore a tendon, but my assailant did not get off undamaged. Since our neighborhood has become so unsafe, I carry a leaded cane when I go out at night, and I struck out with this when the man jumped at me, suddenly from behind a bush. He screamed, and I knew that I must have hurt him. I must have hit his shoulder or breast. He sprang back into the bushes, and although I tried to follow him, he had soon disappeared in the darkness. Next morning all our men were at their posts, but of course it was impossible to have a physical examination made of over two hundred working men, so that I could not tell whether any one of them was suffering from a broken rib or collarbone. However, since then I agree with Mrs. Plone that this unknown criminal must be one of our factory hands. I know that I am not a favorite with them, although I do not know why they should hate me enough to want to kill me, and yet there must be someone who feels that way towards me, someone who belongs to our establishment, for he found his way into my room the day after the attack. He came to your room, exclaimed Hartman, astonished. Yes, he came right into my room, in my absence, of course. Then how did you know he was there? I knew it from something he left behind him, a noose made of an odd sort of black cord. Oh, you can imagine that the discovery did not please me very much. It seemed like a threat, and I have not gone out unarmed since then. Then you are sure that your assailant was the unknown murderer? It looks that way. Hartman turned to the manager. And you haven't the faintest idea, sir, which one of your men it could be who keeps the entire neighborhood in such fear and anxiety? No, not the faintest idea, was the answer. I have had a capable detective living and working among my men for six months now. He found that several of them were under suspicion for crimes committed elsewhere, but he found nothing that would identify the man with the black cord. But now, enough of this unpleasant subject for tonight. Do you care to join us at our usual game of cards? The game lasted for an hour or so. Then Maximoff's carriage was called, and he and his little girl left the house. Hartman bade his host good evening, and took his way down to his lonely pavilion, accompanied by the manager and a servant. Carl opened the door to receive them, and held it open to light the way for the return to the house. "'Have they taken good care of you?' said Hartman, when he was left alone with his valet. "'Oh, yes, very nicely. They even brought my supper out here for me when I asked for it.' "'That's good. But from tomorrow on I have arranged with the manager that you are to eat in the factory mess-room, or else in the village inn. You are to mix in with the working men and pay particular attention to men of unusual size.' "'Pay particular attention to big men?' "'All right, sir.' Carl's face showed great interest, but he did not dare to ask any further questions. "'And now you can go to bed,' said Hartman, "'and remember it is only you who must clean my clothes and shoes. The others must not see them at all.' Carl bowed and left the room. When alone, Hartman began to undress. When he had taken off his coat and vest and his boots, his figure was much shorter and less ample. And when he had finally laid off a costly diamond ring and a handsome scarf-pin, Joseph Mueller stood there in all his own unobtrusive humbleness. He slipped on a dressing-gown, turned off the electric light, and parting the curtains of one of the windows, he looked out into the darkness. When his eyes had grown accustomed to the gloom, he could see the level outlines of the moor stretching away into the distance, beyond the bushes on the other side of the road, and to the right a few groups of trees and some of the outbuildings of the factory completed the skyline. "'What a pity,' he thought. What a great pity that I didn't hear about this man with the black cord before tonight. 
My two years in the South lost me several interesting things, but I suppose I needed the rest. No, I don't agree with my charming hostess as to the fact that this black cord man is one of the working men. The sense of humor shown in the airing of the villa and the building of the snow figure is not usual among men of that class. And then this unheard of recklessness in so impudently leaving his traces behind him from case to case. I suppose I will be able to see one of these bits of cord. Anyway, it's exceedingly interesting. And this last mystery is the most interesting of all. I wonder if there is any connection here. Nobody mentioned the Erlock case tonight, but it probably won't be difficult to get them to talk about it. At this stage in his meditation, Mueller devoted his attention again to the landscape. Then he went to bed. The idea of the black cord is really delicious, most romantic, he murmured once more before he went to sleep. But it's too reckless. This man will hang himself with a bit of his own cord before long. End of chapter 7